Presses Play. Hey everyone, and welcome to Girl Presses Play, the movie podcast where we talk about films, what we think about them, and what makes them so damn great. I'm your host, Alana Rafferty. Get comfy, grab some popcorn, and get ready, because we're about to press play. And now for our feature presentation. Hi, everyone. If you are a season one listener, welcome back. If you are a new listener, lovely to have you here for Girl Press's Play season two. I hope you all are doing well, staying safe, and finding some semblance of peace of mind during these absolutely crazy times. And of course, I hope you all are watching lots and lots of movies. So I'm 29 years old. That's not very old, or at least I don't consider that old. But I am old enough where I've gotten to the point in my life where the film and TV industry is now making remakes of the things that I grew up with. So I cannot tell you how old it made me feel when I heard that they are remaking both Gossip Girl and True Blood, which are both shows that I grew up with in my late teens and early 20s. And once I got over that little third life crisis, it got me thinking about the nature of remakes in general and what interesting films remakes can actually be. I know, I know, usually they are either just cash grabs or a way for a studio or the producers to hold on to the copyright of an IP or something. Usually they do have some sort of mundane or sinister, completely uncreative intent behind them. But there are some remakes out there that can teach us a lot about the filmmakers behind both films and the times and sometimes even different countries each film was made in. And what looking at the original film and its remake says about not just how films have changed, but also how the world has changed and the people who watch them have changed. So, as usual, we're going to take a look at something and get really meta about it. <laughs> So, my dear listeners, buckle up, because we are about to go deep and perhaps a little bit crazy with Girl Press's Play Season 2, Revenge of the Remakes. Girl Press's Play. So, we're going to have some awesome guest stars this season, but for our first episode, I wanted to be greedy and keep this pairing all to myself. A few months ago, my boyfriend and I did a movie night with one of my all-time favorite films, John Carpenter is the thing. The movie is spectacularly weird and gross and just incredibly 80s to its very core. But it's so fascinating how it still holds up today, especially during the pandemic. But I also wanted to watch the original 1951 The Thing from Another World, written by Howard Hawks and directed by Christian Nyby, to see where they're the same and where they differ, and what both movies can teach us about people's fears throughout the decades. So grab your flamethrower and your favorite bottle of scotch, or just your favorite bottle of scotch if you prefer, because today we're taking a look at 1951's The Thing from Another World and 1982's The Thing.
So a little context about how we got both of these movies. The Thing from Another World was based off of the 1938 novella Who Goes There by John Campbell. Also, before we get into this movie, I would like to note that there is some debate over who gets what title in the film's making. So, for example, whether Christian Nyby actually directed this film or, like some articles suggest, Howard Hawks directed it and gave Nyby the directing credit so he could get into the DGA. Certain things like that are up for debate. There are many contrasting stories about who did what and how. For this episode, just to make things a little easier and clearer, we're going to be using the officially credited names on IMDb and Wikipedia for each creative role. So, back to the show. (laughs) Anyway, screenwriter Charles Letterer changed a few things from Who Goes There, which is a very normal thing that happens in book-to-film adaptations, but the biggest change by far was how the alien functioned. So in the novella, the alien can replicate and imitate any life form it comes in contact with. Whereas in the movie, it's more of a classic sci-fi alien that has amazing regeneration processes. In fact, at one point, it's described as being like a living version of a carrot that can just kind of keep growing itself back. My guess is that in the 50s, When horror movies like Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and Them were coming out and had a very clear, physicalized villain, the concept of not seeing the villain and therefore not seeing the villain defeated in front of your eyes was a little bit difficult to grasp for mainstream movie audiences. This makes total sense considering World War II had just ended, The Red Scare was just starting, and the Soviets had just tested an atomic bomb, so there was a lot going on, and people wanted to see their fears get the crap beaten out of them, or in this film's case, burned alive to a pile of goo. And I think Nyby and Letterer seem to have understood how satisfying that would be to audiences and how the novella's interpretation of the alien just wasn't really going to be... Not filmable, but not really relatable. And that's why we see things like the heroism of the army and the scientists going against all better judgment for the love of science and then promptly getting arrested after the alien is defeated. And that's because we wanted to see our heroes fight our intangible fears and come out victorious. Gentlemen, we find ourselves in a battle. I'm not referring to the minor argument of Captain Hendry, but this creature from a new world. Two of our colleagues have died. The third is injured. Those are our losses, and there may be more. This creature is more powerful and more intelligent than we are. He regards us as important only for his nourishment. He has the same attitude toward us as we have toward a field of cabbages. That is our battle. Only science can conquer him. All other weapons will be powerless. Only... There must... There must be a way. I'm not gonna lie, watching this film, it starts to feel a little bit like a propaganda film with its big orchestral swells of victorious music and the fact that the handsome, clean-cut army men are the ones that we're supposed to look up to and... You know, there's that big happy ending that justifies all of our cultural feelings and ideas of what's okay and not okay. 
And of course, just to support all of those themes, the one woman character in the film does absolutely nothing but flirt with the handsome pilot and assist him in any way possible. So yeah, in case you can't tell not only from my description of this film, but the tone of my voice, this film is a lovely but dated sci-fi film, to say the least. And now, for the first time ever on Girl Presses Play, we will be right back after this quick commercial break. So stick around. Hey everyone, Alana here, and it's been a lot of fun making this podcast. I get to talk about what I love, meet some really cool people doing it, and I have total creative freedom. Are you interested in making your own podcast? Go for it, and go for it with Anchor. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more platforms. There's even creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And best of all, it's free. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Alrighty, and welcome back. We are here talking about the original 1951's The Thing from Another World, which is a very fun horror sci-fi film that is perhaps a little overly reflective of its time. This brings us to a little bit later in history, to the late 1970s, when Universal had started developing a remake of the film, one that was a little bit closer to the source material. It had gone through a couple of screenplay drafts with various screenwriters and directors, but the producers just never really found the right fit for the project. And then that's when the perfect synthesis happened from 1979 to 1980, when John Carpenter's Halloween, a small indie horror film about a silent, unidentifiable villain, was this huge bonanza hit, and the film Alien had just revitalized interest in dark, let's just say it, gross sci-fi. So eventually Carpenter signed on, there was a screenplay written by William Lancaster, and the film was greenlit. I do not have to tell you lovely listeners that the remake's tone couldn't be more different than the original. First of all, in this one, the scientists are their own worst enemies, and the alien, like in the novella, was a replicating organism. I mean, even if you don't watch the movie, just listen to their soundtracks and compare them. You know, the swelling orchestral music of Dmitry Tiomkin, I apologize apologize if I am butchering his name, and compare that to the droning, cerebral, super stripped down, almost Jaws-like synth theme coming from Ennio Morricone for Carpenter's version, They just couldn't be more different. But there is some connective tissue between the two of them, of course, because one's the original and the other's a remake. And I think what that connective tissue is, is the rampant mistrust that just tears through the base camp in both movies. In The Thing from Another World, that mistrust was placed on science. But in the 1980s, when the HIV AIDS virus was starting to show up, Politics were becoming much more polarized, and there had been a huge oil and energy crisis in 1979. The mistrust was very much placed on things that are out of our control. 
And there was a fear of the unknown and the uncontrollable that was so palpable in the air. And the movie captures that so well. I would also like to note that the female scientist character was eliminated from the 1982 remake. Oddly enough, I appreciate that in that I'd rather have no female characters than a female character that is forced into the shallow, pretty love interest role for throughout the entire thing. So I think it was a good call on Carpenter and Co. I do also think that it allows for the film to take on this really interesting theme. There seems to be a, a running theme and a running occurrence of the characters having to prove to everyone that they are a real man. I'm a real man. I'm not a fake man. And considering how much homophobia was in mainstream culture, and when you look at the ending of the film, it seems to suggest that this idea of masculinity doesn't get anyone anywhere good. It's not surprising for a Carpenter film, because if you look at Carpenter's other films, such as Halloween, Escape from New York, even the romantic sci-fi movie Starman that he made, which stars Jeff Bridges, and I highly recommend it, there seems to be this feeling of a happy ending never being fully possible for the main characters. And that is especially true in this film because the characters brought themselves here. Yes, they didn't bring the alien to Earth, but just by going somewhere they probably shouldn't have gone, they brought it to their base camp and they have to, well, sleep in the bed they made, basically. And that's in very stark contrast to the original 1951 film, where the blame could be put right on who or what we wanted to put the blame on. I mean, just look at their titles. The Thing from Another World is a lot more specific and villainizing than The Thing, which suggests something much more broad and elusive. One other thing. I think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over. Windows found some shredded long johns, but the name tag was missing. They could be anybody's. Nobody... Nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. Carpenter has said that he was originally reluctant to take on the remake, and it's interesting, he said he didn't want to take it on, because he didn't think the original film could be topped or improved upon. He did not seem to anticipate not only how good the film is, even though unfortunately it was not only a box office flop at the time, but critics seemed to just outright hate the thing or not get the thing. But I don't think he anticipated how relevant the idea of fearing the thing that we can't control would continue to be. Especially now, I don't think I need to tell you guys why it especially feels relevant today. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it has stood the test of time. We'll never stop fearing the unknown and uncontrollable and wanting to control those things. As a self-professed control freak, I know I sure as hell won't. But processing our fears through Carpenter's version feels much more cathartic than the black and white, both literally and metaphorically, original RKO Pictures film. One thing I do want to say, though, is that 
just because I think the 1982 remake does a better version of having the audience's fears be processed and I think that the fears that it's talking about are a little more evergreen that's not to say that I think the original 1951 thing from another world is a terrible movie it's not my favorite horror sci-fi movie but I do think that it has some merit first of all even just the logical fact of if we didn't have the thing from another world, we wouldn't have the thing. So we got to be happy for at least that. Um, but I also think that you can't really judge it for the fact that it is so reflective of the time that it was made in. In fact, I think it's really good that we have movies like The Thing from Another World and Attack of the 50-Foot Woman in them that are very reflective of their time periods Because then we wouldn't be able to see how not only as filmmakers and with film, but as people, how we got from point A to point B. And I do think there are people out there that want something a little bit more like the thing from another world, even in 2021, which is 60 years later. There's me doing math. I do think sometimes even people like myself who like more ambiguous gray area endings I think sometimes it is soothing and perhaps a little therapeutic to have a very clear-cut film with this is this person, this is that person, this is the good guy, this is the bad guy, the good guy defeats the bad guy, the end. So I think what I'm trying to say is, even though I am comparing these two, I'm not trying to compare the quality of the films, I'm just trying to compare how they take the same source material and talk about two very different fears. So I recommend that you watch both of these films. I really do. I think it'd be interesting to watch both films and see which one you respond to more and why in terms of your own fears, your own life situation, and see what kind of questions that brings up. Because it did bring up a lot of questions for me, not just rewatching the thing after a while, but also watching both movies in context with each other and in comparison with each other. So, yeah, do a little double feature. Why not? We're all indoors for the next couple of months, especially here on the East Coast now that it's pretty cold out. Give it a try. See what you find. And that is it for this episode. I want to thank everyone for listening and... Be sure to tune in next time when we look at the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple and Yang Zimu's A Woman, a Gun, and a Noodle Shop, which is his Chinese remake of Blood Simple. We will be talking with Nicole Solomon and Sean Mannion of The Celluloid Mirror, so you know this conversation is going to be really fun, really deep, and a little bit weird. Thanks again. See you next time.
Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for new episodes and be sure to check us out on our Patreon page where you can support the show and get some really cool exclusive stuff for doing it. A very special thanks to our Patreon supporters, John F., Variolo Fencing, LLC, and Helen Rafferty. For news on upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Girl Presses Play. The show is written, produced, and hosted by Alana Rafferty. Intro music is composed by Asha Iwanowitz, and our logo design is by Mark Sauve. Thanks again. See you next time. Girl Presses Play.